he sat on his porch. It was nighttime, and his guitar was there. He always thought it was a little easier that way at night with an instrument nearby. It had been almost 30 years since that one-night stand, that thoughtless, careless, reckless fling that sent his life spiraling out of control so quickly. The guitar was with him then, that night. He wasn't a boy anymore. He wasn't really even a young man. He was a leader, and his people looked to him for the right decision to make, the right road to take. He was alone. He liked that. Solitude gave him time to think, time to rehearse in his mind how things could have gone or should have gone so many years before. But a lot of that was past now. Not a whole lot he could really do to change it. So his thoughts turned to his children and his grandchildren, his people who God had called him to lead. And as he picked up his guitar, he found his way into a very simple, very basic, very beautiful, very quiet song here at the end. Here's what he had to say. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know David right? David, David the shepherd boy, David the giant killer, David the king, David the adulterer, David the murderer, and David the coward. How is someone with such a bafflingly complex character still called a man after God's own heart? Right, that's what I want, not what you want. Like, you get to the end of your life and you stand before God. I really don't want Brandon Marshall, punctual. (laughs) Our souls crave identity, not description. David's one of my favorite biblical characters because he's so deeply human. And that humanity shows up in the Psalms. We've been in the Psalms quite a bit these last few weeks. Psalms is this wonderful book. He's like, dark, dank, funeral dirges, and then this like lofty antiphonal poetry, this like God-exalting theology, just like strewn over like all these chapters in this songbook. And, and it's so naggingly complex. But let's leave David on the porch for a second. I want to name a tension that I think most of us feel. And we can't quite put our finger on it, and it's a very hard tension to name. But if I were to describe it, I would probably describe it like this. If you're a musician, it feels like something inside of you is in the wrong key. It feels like something is going against the grain of your soul. And I think it's a very deep, swelling tension that only comes out in our most honest moments. And it sounds something like this. 
you're running really fast. You're trying really hard. But you're getting nowhere. There's a word for that. It's called spiritual burnout. It happens when we don't make space. When we get tired and then we eventually move to the sidelines and then we move from the sidelines to the bench. And when that happens to Christians, the church as a whole in our culture gets swept as quickly and as quietly as a whisper to the periphery. So what I'm worried about is I'm worried that our church in the, in the U.S. as a whole is losing ground because we are losing sight of our identity. So what does it mean to abide? That's what we're talking about today. What does it mean to abide? And Psalm 131 is going to be where we're hanging out. I think this is where, what our spiritual great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather David's trying to tell us. He's trying to call us in close, cup his hands and say, listen. North Canton Chapel, here's my secret to abiding, and it's not what you might think. We are smack in the middle of our Making Space series, and I hope these past few weeks have been beneficial for you. In our time together, I want to look at just three short verses that offer what I think to be the simplest, clearest, most beautiful description of discipleship that the Bible has to offer. It's sweet and it's beautiful, but it's also really deep and strong and gritty, and that brings us to Psalm 131. You can turn there or you can, you can look on the screens. It's three short verses, so if you're not much into scripture memory, start here, and then you can brag to everybody, I memorized an entire psalm. All right, there's three verses. Here you go. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Interesting phrase. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So Psalm 131 belongs to a group of 15 psalms. You may have it in your Bible. There's a little italicized thing underneath it. Probably says a psalm or a song of ascent. Well, what are those things? So Scholars believe that at some point in, 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 in David's lifetime, there were these psalms that were gathered together, and they, they comprised what we now know as the songs of ascent, all right? So here's what happened. These songs were actually used by God's people as they made their way to Jerusalem several times a year for feasts. They would sing these songs together. These are road trip songs, Mandy and I have three kids. Joseph is 12, Karsten is 10, and Hannah just turned eight last week. And we have a minivan. We are a minivan family, and darn proud to be so, right? There's no, don't judge me. It's teal. It has stow-and-go seating, and it's got more cup holders than I could ever imagine using, even with all those, like, 600-calorie Chick-fil-A milkshakes. But it's awesome, and we bought, a road, or we bought a van because we like taking road trips. We travel together. Mandy's folks live in uh, the suburbs of Chicago, and so this last Thanksgiving, we piled in the van, and we drove all across the exotic, tropical northern Indiana on I-80 all the way to Chicago. And what we did over those eight hours, which is just long enough to really create some great memories but not want to kill each other, like eight hours is, is it, okay? 
We sang songs, we told jokes, we told stories, right? The kids talked about what they wanted to get for Christmas, right? This was a little eight-hour mini pilgrimage. And all that discussion in the minivan helped to pass the time, but it also helped prepare us for what was coming. That's what these psalms are about. So put a bookmark in that, because we'll come back to that in a minute. So here's David as an old man, trying to capture images of these pilgrimages that he made as a boy, right? And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he lifts his pen and he starts to write down some of these images, these, these, these high and lifted up. He thinks about mountains, high and lifted up, and you see that image in there. It's also easy to imagine as he's walking along that there's families taking this road trip together. Little kids always bugging mom for a snack, right? Mom always comes through. So this idea of, a, of high and lifted up and a weaned child, they make total sense in the context of first century or early, or early pilgrimage to Jerusalem with God's people. But what's with that middle phrase? Take a look. Things too marvelous for me or too lofty for me to attain. What, what is that? All these images that David pulls, they swirl and combine and they totally make sense. But that middle phrase is what we need to put a magnifying glass over. That phrase is so foreign to us in 2018 that we might be tempted to skip over it without really ringing it out. It's like David saying this, there are things I do not need to be concerned with. There are things that if I give them free reign over my heart, they will rob me of my joy as a child of God. And so I deliberately push those things away. I don't care about those things. Doesn't that sound freeing? Like, I kind of want that, don't you? Wouldn't you love to have that little pass? Be like, I'm not thinking about that, sorry. If there's anything that pulls me away from my identity... Anything that erodes my sense of place and trust with my Father, that distracts from a simple abiding love of my Heavenly Father, I push it away. I don't have time for that. Now stop. Here's the king of Israel. Okay? The man responsible for the political, social, economic, military, spiritual advancement of God's people. And he says... No, when my head gets cluttered with stuff, I'd rather find my identity sitting on my father's lap like a baby than force it through the pursuit of the ever-elusive more. Isn't that weird? I mean, if there's anybody who should be concerned about high and lofty things, it's King David, right? You are the highest man in the land, dude. And he says, nope, lap. You and I, our responsibilities pale in comparison with David's. But if we're honest, our identities are so, so less stable. I think we've lost our ability to abide. So with this psalm as our foundation, I want to offer three ideas, three choices we have to make if we're going to make space to abide. And so for you blank filler types, here's your first one. The first choice we make is our pace, our pace. 
In an article in Leadership Journal a few years ago, Eugene Peterson wrote this. See if you resonate with this at all. I'm like a puppy dog, he says. Somebody throws a Frisbee and and says, get it, and I run and I get it. And I come back and do it again. Fetch is the one word I know really well. I've done a lot of fetching, but I've never learned how to sit. Let me let you into my heart for a second. I can't shake this deep need to just slow down. I want my eyes to find a place that is ageless, brandless, where there's no commercial, because my soul can't keep up with it. Anybody resonate with that feeling? Something inside of me is begging for me to not add anything more to my plate, to let like the silt of the river settle and dissipate until the water eventually becomes clear, and then I'll actually see what really matters and what's really enduring. You with me? It could be that we've unknowingly bought into this image of discipleship that measures the height of our peaks rather than the steadiness of our pace. Discipleship should be a steady walk, a paced journey measured in faithfulness, not this manic series of highs and lows measured by what shape we manage to drag ourselves out of the valley and onto the next vista. Here's what I've learned as a pastor and as I've seen it in my life is when I am unattentive to my own pace, unfettered generosity is the first casualty. Here's what I mean. So we used to live in Chicago and we had a neighbor Our neighbor's name is Norma. Norma's 86 years young, all right? Norma plows her own driveway. Don't you try and help her, all right? She mows her own grass, all right? She makes rhubarb strawberry pie. She puts little 4th of July flags up and down her driveway every 4th of July, right? And she owns an iPad. She's really, really hip, all right? Here's what God taught me about Norma. So I was coming out of my garage one day. I had to go to the store to get something. It was like chips or whatever, and, um, and I noticed Norma, and she looked like she was struggling with something in her garage, so um, I stopped, and I went across the street and said, hey, Norma, what's, what's going on? And we got to talking, and she said, well, come on in for a second. And she wanted to just give me a drink of iced tea because I helped her screw in a light bulb. I said, sure, you know. And uh, so I get right inside the little doorway there. There's a little mud room, and uh, she's got a stack of, like, Duplos, the big old Legos, like, sitting there. And there's this thin layer of dust all over the Legos. I'm like, that's kind of odd, right? And uh, so we get to talking, and I'm like looking at my watch. I'm like, I gotta go get chips. I gotta go. <sighs> hurry, 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 hurry. But I couldn't ignore it, so I had to ask her. I said, Normal, what's, what's with these Legos here? And she goes, oh, well, those are my grandsons, which totally made sense, right? And then I said, well, if you don't mind me asking, like they look a little dusty, what's up? And she said, well, um, my grandson's 18, and uh, I haven't seen him in 14 years. I was like, okay, I'm not going to get chips right now. So what happened is we spent the next half hour, and she talked to me about her family and how there's tension, right? Because it's every family, right? And we eventually got to pray together and just spend some time listening to her. I didn't get the chips, in case you're wondering how the story ends. I went back across home and I said, Mandy, I don't have chips. Here's the deal. When I think about my pace, I think about my neighbor, Norma. Now, if you're like me, you know that our pace is a problem, 
okay? So here's what we do. I do this, and maybe you do the same thing. All right, I know my pace and the problem. I'm going to make space for God. So for the next week, I'm going to get up at 4.30 every morning. I'm going to pound through six psalms before breakfast. And I'm going to sit down with my calendar, and I'm going to map out like a personal retreat day once a month. That's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to sign up for every Bible study that this church has to offer, everything at that next tips table. I'm in. I am making space for God. It's called intensity fatigue, okay? Now, for some of you, this is not a problem, but for some of us, the pain is so very real. (laughs) You are a well-balanced person, if this is not a problem for you. But for the rest of us, here's what happens. Here's how this works, okay? Our really well-intentioned passion catapults us into this, like, really high and lofty goals, which we don't meet, and so we feel discouraged and defeated, and so when we finally sit with ourselves for long enough to realize that we're like way, way, way too busy, we say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything. Anybody else ever have that happen in your life? Here's my word for you, if that's you. Never underestimate the cumulative effect of small obediences. Discipleship is not this huge, giant decision that we make rashly and say, I'm going to go do this big thing. No, it's a whole lot of small obediences that over time amount to a very beautiful life in Christ. For some of you, that's intuitive. But for the rest of us, start small. (laughs) The first choice we need to make is to choose our pace. Here's the second choice. We need to choose our posture. We need to choose our posture. Confession time. I am secretly obsessed with how I'm perceived, and so are you. I'm not alone in this. But here's the thing. My Facebook profile picture has a booger in it, and I don't know Photoshop, so I can't go back and change it. It's there, right? But why does that bother me? And all of us are in the same thing. It bothers me because I am a deeply prideful person, and I live in a culture of deeply prideful people, and it endorses my pride And it lures me into thinking that unless, like, I've got this perfectly manicured life, hmm, I'm not what I should be. And so we have this posture that really, outwardly, we're like this. Inwardly, we're like this. I saw a quote the other day I thought was hilarious. It said this, the only two kinds of people that are honest in the world are infants and people on their deathbed. Everybody else is just being polite. Like, that actually is dead on. There's an old song. It's a shaker song. And it goes like this. Tis a gift to be simple. Tis a gift to be free. Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. When we find ourselves in the place just right, it will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we shan't be ashamed. To turn and to turn will be our delight till by turning, turning, we come round right. Why does that speak to us? Because you and I are like springs tightly wound in the wrong direction. It's the same thing that Jesus was trying to get Martha to understand, right? If you remember that little episode in the Gospels, Martha is trying her best to get every dinner plate set just right. Every dusty corner of the floor was, was swept. Every knickknack was put back in a closet or like tucked behind a chair. And Jesus calls her out on it and he goes, Martha, 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 I know you're good. But something else is needed right now. 
Jesus' words to Martha weren't so much, Martha, stop, as much as it was, Martha, me. We've lost that. You and I are exactly like Martha. We're so eager to do stuff for Jesus that we forget to cultivate affections for Jesus. We are worshipers first, doers second. So it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how eloquent you speak, how many books you've read, how many verses you can rattle off. If you wrestle with your perception, let me say this to you. Free yourself from the pressure to impress anybody. Because like Martha, Paul, Peter, and an endless parade of disciples, what you and I really need to hear is that we are not that impressive. God doesn't need you to add to his glory. He needs you to act like an adopted son or a daughter. You need to be free from this pressure to tie your identity to what you do, how you look, or how other people perceive you. You are an adopted child of a loving father. Because of Christ, you are never an inconvenience to him. You are always welcome. You are never a bother. You are always a joy to him. Sit on his lap and enjoy him. So that's the second choice we need to make. We need to choose our posture. Here's the third one. Third choice we need to make is to choose presence. You know, I think one of the hardest things that we can do in our world today, in this flustery, blustery, hurried world that we live in, is to give people the gift of our undivided attention. And it's so tough to do because we live in a culture that like tries to convince us that we would be better off somewhere else. The next rung, the next place, the next thing up, the next improvement, the next upgrade, right? Here's my experience. Things are, the grass always looks greener on the other side. It's usually the devil with a can of spray paint. (laughs) Just letting you know. Presence is super hard. It's a battle. And so we're running into this all the time. At North Canton Chapel, we really believe that relationships drive lasting change. Nothing builds disciples like community. And so we major on things like groups and missional communities and ABFs and Bibles. We major on these things. Why? Because relationships matter. Have you ever noticed how hard relationships are to maintain? And I'm not talking if you're an introvert or an extrovert, okay? Just anything. It's hard to have a healthy relationship, It takes work. It's a battle. I ran across this article in Psychology Today, and it says this. Now, this this applies to marriages, but I I think it's true with any relationship. Here's what it says. Marriages, and I think you could say all relationships, don't die with a bang. They quietly tiptoe away and are gone before you know they've left. Marriages die slowly under the gradually rising wave of distracted indifference. Finally, one of them pops up to the surface, looks around, and decides that this just doesn't work, that I've fallen out of love, and that this is not enough. We've all had relationships like that, marriage or otherwise. Not to mention our relationship with God. It's worth saying something here, though. 
The enemy of my ability to be present in undivided attention is not my iPhone or social media or my task list. That's not the enemy. That just gives evidence to the fact of what I really believe down deep in my heart. That's the enemy. It's this two-pronged belief that says this. One, you are not enough to satisfy me. And two, I am worthy of something better than you. Now, we don't talk like that because it sounds terrible. But that's what we really believe. And so we say, I'm just going to go look over here for a little bit. I'm going I'm to multitask. No, you're not. You're just pulling away when God says lean in. As disciples, we are called to be knowable. I think we missed that. And so to truly know someone means to be in their kitchen to know what color their dishes are, to know how they set up their living room, to know where their favorite chair is. We're called to be knowable. Here are five questions to gauge your ability to be fully present. All right, you ready? And this comes from like my soul work this week, so I'm guilty of every one of them, okay? Here you go. One, do you practice Sabbath, a day where you push things away for the sake of your soul? Two, Are you able to sit in prayer without your mind wandering? Seriously tough for me. When you're with others, are you able to listen without building what you're going to say next? Four, do you get sucked into text conversations during family meals or dates with your spouse? Five, you'll notice I hurried on from that one rather quickly. Five, Are you able to enjoy being with others without wondering what you're missing? Third choice we need to make is to choose our presence. So David, okay? I've calmed and quieted my soul. I don't think on things too marvelous for me. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. Think of David's legacy before Psalm 131. Throne sitter. Wife taker. Life taker. Self-king, family forgetter, God user. And then God draws him close. And he becomes contented song singer. Disciplined hope spreader. Joyful shepherd. Trusting lap sitter. How about verse three though? Verse three, it's a little tricky one. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Now, why that verse? Because at first blush, it seems like a little holy tack on the end, doesn't it? Like, hey, here's all this great, rich, deep imagery. Now, just like hope in God. Go, be well. It's like the thing you say, like, as you're exiting a worship service, like, hey, have a great week. Just do this last little thing. Not really, right? This word for hope is a really powerful word in Hebrew, and it means to actively expect It's the kind of expectation that rubs its hands together. Jeremiah used it when he said, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. It's the same word. It's got like teeth to it. Job, the consummate sufferer, though he slay me, I will hope in him. And so let's be clear. This idea of abiding in Jesus, this isn't some like Zen Buddhist thing where I just empty my mind, sip some tea, and listen to the Peaceful Raindrops playlist on Spotify with some noise-canceling headphones on. This is a deep, gritty idea. And why doesn't, what's the matter with those ideas? Because it doesn't work. 
that doesn't change anything. That actually pulls me away from when what Jesus wants to do is invade in. And that's what David is pointing to here. So watch this. We're about 3,000 years away from this psalm. Here, where we are. So put yourself in David's shoes for a second. Looking back over your shoulder from this side of the cross, who is David hoping in? Jesus. He's looking forward and he's saying, one day, God's gonna do something awesome. This is a prayer for flustered disciples who are so prone to lose their identity in the whirlwind of life whose hands are full with the day-to-day of life, meals to prep, kids to schlep around, bills to pay, taxes to pay. Sorry, you know it's coming. And so David stands here saying, one day our God is going to bring hope incarnate into this world. I don't know when or where or how, but it's gonna be incredible and it's going to change everything. Jesus is the only religious figure who promises to change you from the inside out. You realize how profound that is? Every other religious system that this world can chuck up says, I'm going to change you from the outside in. So behave, follow these rules, jump through these hoops, do this set of stuff from the outside, and eventually you'll be holy. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out that cold lump of stone that's in your chest, and I'm going to give you a real, live, beating heart that's built for affection. You're going to see things you haven't seen before, feel pain like you've never felt before, laugh louder, cry more deeply, love more sincerely, see people completely differently, because you're going to look at your life with a whole new lens. Jesus didn't die for what you could do for him. He died for who you could become in him. And that is a profound difference. And so your identity as a disciple is not a methodological issue. It's not what Bible study to attend, what book to read, you know, what what devotional guide to go through, or even what church to attend. It's not a methodological issue. Your identity is a Christological issue. Can you abide at the feet of your Savior like a contented child? So here's the whole thing about this abiding business. You will abide in something. You are, right now, abiding in something. It's how we're wired. You can't untrain your soul to do that. So the only question is, really, well, what'll it be? Some of us abide in comfort or wealth or stuff Some of us put our hope in our opinions or our politics or what we think, and we abide there. Some of us, this is the most dangerous thing of all, we abide in somebody else. And so we take all of our insecurities and all that stuff that we don't really want to talk about, and we project it on somebody else, and we abide in them. And as you could have guessed, every one of those options falls short. You could try 50 million different things. They're never going to do it because they don't change you from the inside out. They aren't capable of handling your soul like Jesus is. So over the last 30 minutes, I haven't given you one thing to do. I've just described what abiding looks like. Okay, so I've got one point of application and then we're going to wrap it up. Only one, but it's really important and it's a question. 
What do you hunger for? Think about this for a minute. You've got to reflect. What do you want, really? Did you ever notice something? You can't fake hunger. You ever sat down to dinner at somebody's house when you're not really hungry, but you got to eat anyway? It's terrible. I know a lot of Christians that act that way. I acted that way for a long time. Like we go to church, we may read our Bible, we're a part of a group, we kind of go through these motions things, but we're not really hungry. We don't really want to abide. We just kind of want to look like we are. And so if that's you, and in a room this size, there's a good chance there's at least one of us who can relate to my story in that. Let me give you just one thing to do. Tell God about it. Just tell him. He knows anyway. So just tell him. And it would sound something like this. and Say, God, you know, I don't hunger for you like I want to. I've grown cold. I'm bored. I've tapped out. And I don't want that. I want to hunger more. And that's actually really hard to say. Because if we really say it and mean it, it means that my greatest problem in my life is not my politics, my blah, 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 my family, my blah, 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 whatever. No, my biggest problem in my life is me. I'm not sure what it was like when God's people walked this road to Jerusalem 3,000 years ago and they sang this song. I don't know if this was the quiet song or the loud song. I don't know if it was the first or the middle or where it fit and all that. But I know that they probably meant it. (laughs) And so wherever you are this morning, I want to free you for something. We're going to close in song in a little bit and we're going to close with a quiet song. And the reason for that is I want to free you. If you want to sing, sing. Do it from your heels. If you want to sit, sit. If you want to get off of your chair and kneel by your chair and just say, God, I need to come clean and do business with you, do it. If you need to come up here and do that, that's what these are for. This is just like this little edge here. It's just like a tangible reminder of saying, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. I'm going to do something physical that sometimes can be a catalyst for the spiritual. So whatever that looks like for you, here's, here's my word. Don't leave this morning without doing business with God. Let me pray. God, we are very grateful for you. We're very grateful that you, for some strange reason, saw fit to call us your children. We're grateful that despite our unwillingness to even sit at your feet, actually, it's the opposite. We ran the other way. That you still want us to be called home and you still want us to adopt, you want to adopt us as your sons and your daughters so that we could sit at your feet and do nothing but enjoy you. Father, we love you and we are so very grateful for the ability to worship, to talk about your worth-ship, talk about how great you are, how sufficient you are. God, would you work in our hearts now? We're your children and we love you. Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.